Hey guys. We're back with another episode of BHFD Crimes with your hosts, Bill, Hannah, Fallon, and Tran. Today we are talking about parasite. We will go through three different cases and the reasons behind why they did it. Stay, Stay tuned to learn more. In today's episode, I'll be talking about Jennifer Pan, who, like the rest of the criminals in this series, killed her parents. I'll go through the events in the order at which they happened so you can get the best understanding. What did Jennifer's childhood look like? Were her parents abusive at all? Actually, her parents weren't physically abusive, but more mentally draining. They had such high expectations of Jennifer, and she really didn't want to let them down. In order to not let them down, she lied about her whole life. Her parents thought that Jennifer had graduated high school, finished two years in university, gotten to a second university, and was working in the medical field. But this was all a lie. What was she actually up to? Contrary to what her parents thought, Jennifer was actually living a completely different second life. She never graduated high school, faked all of her report cards and diplomas, and lived with her drug dealer boyfriend. She was able to keep up this act for a really long time, but eventually, everything was found out. How did her parents find out about this life. Keeping up all of these lies was really difficult, especially when there's other people involved. Jennifer's parents thought that she was staying at a friend's house, so one night they called the friend, who groggily told them that Jennifer wasn't there. That raised their suspicions to the max. They followed Jennifer around until they found out about all of her lies. What did her parents do once they found out about her second life? When her parents found out about her second life, they gave her an ultimatum. She could either live with her drug dealer boyfriend, have no financial help or contact with her family, being disowned, or leave her other life, break up with her boyfriend, and start the life that they thought she had been living. She made the choice to stay with her parents and leave her second life, but she still kept it and tried to keep it a secret. It was just way harder for her. We can clearly see that Jennifer's parents were extremely upset with this second life. This rush of emotions is what led them to give her the two choices. But one of the reasons she started this double life in the first place is because psychologically, deep down, almost everyone wants their parents' approval and praise. Which is what she wanted, but she just couldn't do the work. However, Jennifer couldn't choose to leave home either. She wasn't able to sustain herself, and she couldn't depend on her boyfriend. This left her with one choice which was to give it all up. But she couldn't do that. She was having too much fun. And one of the best parts was the adrenaline she received from sneaking around and making all these lies and fake stories. So Jennifer decided to make her own choice, a third one, which was to stay at home so she could have a warm bed and a roof over her head. But she still kept sneaking around and keeping it a secret. So basically, she didn't change anything at all. Since she had to try so hard to keep it a secret and all of the lies were piling up even more than they did before, she felt like the only way to get out of this was to kill her parents. Okay, let's get into the whole story. Since she thought that killing her parents was the only option, she was lucky to have her drug dealer boyfriend and his connections. She hired hitmen to kill her parents. However, they didn't do the job right. They came in when Jennifer and her parents were both home and posed as robbers trying to take their money. If Jennifer could have picked one parent to survive, it would have been her mom, because her dad was way harder on her. However, that wasn't the case. The hitmen were supposed to kill both of her parents, but ended up only killing her mom and putting her dad in a coma. While he was in his coma, 
Jennifer was taken to talk with the investigators. At this point, she was only considered a witness to the crime and not a suspect. At this point in the investigation, they didn't even know if she was a suspect, so they had to treat her like someone who just watched her parents die. Plus, if they made any hints towards her being the killer, and she wasn't, that could severely traumatize her, even more than having just previously watched her parents die. At this point, they had no reason to actually suspect her, and if they had any thoughts that she may be a suspect, they couldn't let her on to that because that would ruin any chance at building a relationship between victim and investigator, which would help them get her to confess things later on in the trial. So they basically just didn't want to cause more damage than the traumatic event already has. However, during her questioning, Jennifer acted very strangely, and there was clear holes in her story. During her first questioning process, Jennifer seemed innocent, but the further and deeper they got into the story, it was more obvious that she wasn't telling the whole truth. Her body language throughout the whole thing seemed odd. She kept looking at the detective for confirmation that he was believing her. It was obvious that something was off, and the detectives are trained to see what her actions are saying rather than her words. And Jennifer's actions were not like someone who had just been through a traumatic event would be acting like. When she was speaking about the event, her sentences were well-formed and almost seemed like they were pre-planned. Actual dialogue and the simple wording of a sentence becomes very challenging. Jennifer seems to be more concentrated on how she's being perceived, yet finds her words easily and executes her sentences perfectly. That clip was from Jennifer's first interview at the point where the first suspicion was raised. There was not enough evidence to make her a suspect yet, but they brought her in two more times after this questioning. What happened during the next questioning that made them think she was a suspect? During her next questioning, she was asked to repeat the story, and she didn't tell the same one. She tried really hard to stick to the same things, but the detectives are really good at their jobs. They asked her questions from beginning to middle, back to the beginning to the end in no specific order, trying to fatigue her. The strategy worked, and they found even more holes in Jennifer's story. But they still didn't have enough to convict her. However, her dad came out of his coma. They thought he would have been brain dead considering he was shot in the head. But he remembered everything from that night. Well, what was her dad's side of the story? When her dad came out of the coma, the police went right to him and spoke with him without Jennifer knowing. Jennifer was completely unaware that her father remembered the whole event. He was not allowed to let Jennifer know that he was completely okay, and his whole memory was there. Jennifer's father claimed that the story that Jennifer told was a complete lie. She was never tied up, and she was talking to one of the men like they were friends. Well, if the holes in her story weren't enough to call her a suspect, that definitely is. Exactly. She was brought in again, thinking it was a completely normal for how investigations work. However, she was unaware that she was now considered a suspect. The detective made it seem like he was on her side the whole time, and Jennifer opened up to him about her past, almost every aspect in her life, including her depression. It almost seemed like he was the first person who Jennifer was able to open up to that she felt like cared. Now that Jennifer felt like the detective was on her side, he put more pressure on her to try and get her to tell the truth by saying, Speaking to every other expert on the case, and at this point, Jennifer, I know that you've not been truthful with the police, okay? You've not told us everything that you know, purposely. You've spent 
a considerable amount. That was a clip from the interrogation between the detective and Jennifer Pan. In this instance, the detective was making Jennifer feel closer to him and be able to open up to her throughout the entire interrogation. But then after she got comfortable, he drops the hammer and confronts her directly, which surprises her, causing her to either say the truth or make up a lie on the spot that doesn't fit her story. And that's exactly what happened. It's after this point that Jennifer tells the detective she did hire a hitman, but not for her parents, for herself. She says that she wanted to die, so she hired someone to do it. And somehow, they killed the wrong person. She told this new story and tried to remain as innocent as she could. What Jennifer didn't know was that admitting to this would already put her in jail. After this, she would already be convicted of conspiracy of murder. Since she would already be going to jail, the detective was able to put more pressure on her and try to make her admit to more. Right, because if they're already going to jail, it's legal for the detective to put more pressure on the suspect in order to get answers. Exactly. Jennifer was asked the same questions over and over, making it more obvious that she was behind it all, yet she still wouldn't admit it. Eventually, the detective gave up, and Jennifer was sentenced to conspiracy of murder, first-degree murder, and attempted murder. Later in her real trial, they uncovered text messages of her and her boyfriend planning the entire thing. There was no way around that one. Adolescent killers are grouped into three categories. Jennifer Pan falls mostly into the second one, which is fear and hatred towards the victim, as well as non-accessible means of murder and premeditation. Stay tuned to hear about the other categories and the rest of the cases we have for you today. And that is the story of how Jennifer Pan tried to get away with killing her parents. For more information on this crime, head over to our website, bhfdcrimes.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. If you're experiencing troubles at home, the Jumpstart Youth Foundation offers programs for all ages. Whether you need a small getaway, helpful advice, or a shoulder to cry on, we are here to help. Don't be shy. Visit us on 817 Cove Road at any time. We also have a helpline, 1-800-97-YOUTH. In my segment of the episode, I'm talking about the King Brothers case. This case turned many hats as the young teenage boys killed their father to live with an adult male lover. Was his desire truly enough to commit murder? The boys never had the easiest childhood. Why is that? Their mother left them after giving birth to twins from another man. She was a drug addict and felt overwhelmed from motherhood. She left Terry and all four boys. Terry was forced to put the boys up for adoption and into foster care as he couldn't be there financially. The twins were adopted while Derek and Alex were split apart. Derek moved in with the Lay family, while Alex was sent to live with a foster family. Alex's foster situation didn't work out and was sent back to live with his father. Alex seemed happy living with his dad, as reported by their paternal grandmother. Meanwhile, over the next few years, Derek had become a red flag to the Lay family. He got involved with drugs and stirred up a passion for fire. Frank Lay became worried for his children's safety and sent Derek back with his father. This is when Alex changed. When questioned, Kelly, the boy's mother, described Terry as strict, but would sacrifice anything for his boys. He loved them unconditionally and was a gentle father. Terry never physically abused his children, although the boys felt mentally abused by Terry's apparent stare-downs. Mental abuse started a long time ago. It had been going on for a real long time. I got informed by, by someone that he was doing this, 
himself. Who informed you of that? The stare downs happened when Terry wanted the boys full attention. When he was talking, he made sure they kept eye contact. There was no being distracted or looking in the distance. We later find out Ricky Chavez told them this is a form of mental abuse. Who is Ricky Chavez? Ricky Chavez was a family friend and former child molester. It is unknown if Terry knew of this title. Terry leaned on Chavez for help with the boys. They would hang out at his house or be picked up from school. Terry noticed the boys spending too much time with Chavez and getting a little too close. So what did he do? He told Chavez they've spent enough time together and stopped all contact. He even removed Ricky from the emergency pickup list at school. Shortly after, in November of 2001, Alex and Derek King had ran away. They left home to go live with Chavez. For a week, they were missing while Chavez kept it a secret. He eventually called Terry to say he found the boys in the woods. Terry picked them up that night to bring them home. Alex decided that was the night. While their father was asleep on the couch, Derek grabbed an aluminum baseball bat and repeatedly hit Terry in the head. On the final hit, Terry made a dying gurgling noise and they knew he was dead. They later set the house on fire to conceal all evidence. The boys hid with Ricky for the next couple of days, where he let them wash up and clean their clothes. When the police got the call, they were told a house was on fire between two streets. Ricky informed the police that the fire was at the exact house Terry King lived in. Terry's body was unrecognizable when discovered. Days later, Ricky sent the boys to confess. The King's brothers' confessions aligned perfectly. Why would he send them to confess? Ricky knew if the boys' stories aligned and they confessed, they would spend little time in jail, being able to reunite sooner than later. During the trials, we find out Ricky had a romantic relationship with the boys, specifically Alex. We find exchanged love letters and journals talking about their love for one another. During the trials, the boys changed their stories countless times. They became unbelievable. We also find out during their time in jail that Ricky would leave hidden messages anywhere he could. They would be found in the trash can or engraved in the walls. The messages were often unfinished. Although we are unsure exactly what these messages meant, we're almost positive they were directed towards the boys. Almost a year after the murder, a mediated agreement was reached. What were their sentences? And did Ricky get time too? Alex and Derek pled guilty to third-degree murder and arson. Derek received eight years and Alex seven, both in prison, along with credit for time served. The boys were released in 2008 and 2009, now adults. Chavez was guilty of false imprisonment where he received a five-year sentence. 
He was also guilty of tampering with evidence and as an accessory after the fact to murder. His sentence total is 35 years and will be released around 2038. As we heard during the Jennifer Pan segment, there are three categories that adolescent killers get grouped into. The King brothers fall under the third category, which is abuse and neglect during their home life. Abuse is not defined as physical or sexual or anything else, but the abuse that these boys felt was mental, and it was predominantly the so-called stare-downs. This not only made the boys uncomfortable, it started to light a fire deep inside of them that was the hatred for their father. However, they were young boys and did not really know what was wrong and what was right. When Ricky Chavez came along, all he did was feed the fire. He told the boys he loved them, and he made them feel safe with him. He would tell them here and there that what they were experiencing was mental abuse and that it was not okay. This upset them and made them angry, which caused them to despise their father more and more. In the next few weeks, when Ricky gave them a way to escape, they took it without thinking of the consequences. What these boys did was wrong, but they are also children who had been psychologically manipulated their entire lives. This is what the jury took into account, and this is the reason that the boys had smaller sentences. Now stay tuned to find out how the next case is connected to this one, and what the last group of killers are. One Family is a great, affordable session to help families heal and grow. They offer one to two hour sessions of family counseling. This is a great way to reconnect an extremely important bond. One Family is located on 12 Crescentwood Park. You can also visit their website for insightful tips and more information at onefamily.org. In this episode of BHFD Crimes, I'll be talking about Eric and Lyle Menendez. Eric and Lyle went through such a rough childhood. What made it so rough? Eric and Lyle went through such terrible things, like their father sexually molesting them and threatening to kill them if they told anyone what was going on. Whoa! Eric and Lyle lived pretty well their whole childhoods like this, and were very hurt by it in many ways. I personally can't imagine how terrible this would have been for them. After failed attempts of running away and getting help, they believed out of their fear that there was only one way to solve this terrible issue they were in. How did they solve the issue? After Eric was told what his father planned to do with him one night, Eric lost it, and out of his hatred and anger, called up his brother and planned to take action by killing both of their parents, Mr. and Mrs. Menendez. So, did they? Yes. The boys killed their parents, and were not merciful about it either. They took an aggressive and gruesome approach to this heinous act. How did they do it? Eric and Lyle believed this moment would come eventually, so they planned ahead and purchased a gun. As their parents were watching TV in their family room, Eric and Lyle, which I assume would have been a major surprise and frightful moment for Mr. and Mrs. Menendez, walked in with a shotgun and shot both their mother and father multiple times. After all this happened, Eric and Lyle acted in horror in front of the police to keep the suspicions off of them. Well, how did they try to get away with that? The two boys went to many lengths to keep this off of them. They tried really hard to keep it quiet and act like the victims by crying in funerals and acting heartbroken. They even hired a TV company to make claims that their father had ties to the Mafia, so it would have seemed like a hired hitman. They also attended many interviews and that eventually raised questions and caused suspicions of them being the ones who killed their parents, Mr. and Mrs. Menendez. Were they ever caught? Yes, they were caught. But a couple of years after the murder, the boys were caught and confessed to the murder in an interview. The reason for their confession isn't exactly known, but some people assume they couldn't bear the guilt and shame of the blood on their hands.
Many people were heartbroken after hearing this terrible news and after supporting and feeling sympathy for these abused boys. What happened after they got caught? Because of the boys' inherited wealth, these boys had expensive and good lawyers defending them. Many believed that they would get away with the murders because of what they went through and what their parents did to them. The two brothers attended trials where they were questioned and soon proven guilty for the murder of their parents. How long were they sentenced for? Eric and Lyra were old enough to be tried as adults, so they were sentenced to life in prison. The two brothers said that they were so full of hatred and wanted to put an end to what their father was doing to them, so they acted on it but claimed not to be proud of what they did. Eric and Lyle, after a couple of years in prison, were invited to take part in an interview about their whole situation, and they took up this opportunity. In this interview, they were asked many questions about their point of view and their thought process during this issue. Eric and Lyle claimed to be ashamed and heartbroken about what they did. They wish, if given the opportunity, they would go back and find a much better solution to their issue. They also attempted to encourage others to find help if going through the same situation they went through. They were then asked if they believed what they did was justified. They answered by saying, I certainly never felt that what I did was justified or right. It was just a question of how wrong was it. That was a big misperception about this case, that it was about justification or excuse. Many still don't believe what Eric and Lyle have said in the interview, but I personally think they regret the decision, but I also believe that they deserve their punishment. As you can see, the abuse towards the Menendez brothers ultimately ended the same way as with the Kings. Both these sets of brothers were psychologically tormented the majority of their lives, and their cases are remarkably similar. For a weapon, the Kings used a readily accessible aluminum bat, and the Menendez brothers used their father's shotgun, which was readily accessible to them. In both cases, both sets of brothers were just tired of being abused and went to extreme lengths to end it and afterwards they both ended up confessing. One of the big reasons for confessing to crimes is the guilt gets them, or they're scared of getting caught, and they think it's just better to confess. This is what happened with both sets of brothers, is more so the guilt and a little bit of the fear of getting caught. And the Menendez brothers fall into the same category as the King did, which is abuse and neglect at home. However, I did say there was three. In the first one, is people who kill because they look at it as their work, or they're proud of it, or they get some sort of enjoyment out of it. And those are the kind of people that confess so that people know it was them. We would like to thank you again for tuning in for this week's episode of BHFT Crimes. You can check out our website to find out more information about these crimes at bhftcrimes.com. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to get notified when we post. Stay tuned for next week to hear about the secrets of the Miller family. We would like to thank our editor, Bill Hawks, our directors and producers, Hannah Bruce, Trinity Gadette, Fallon Appleby, and Bill Hawks for making these podcasts possible. See you all next week!